0: Well, it's, uh, it really is uh, a great passage before us today, and, and I wanted to, uh, to think a little bit about it. Uh, Jeff kind of alluded to it before. Uh, there used to be an ad, uh, Tim Tam ad, um, where they uh, open the, uh, the Tim Tams and the genie pops out and uh, the, uh, the genie says, all right, uh, three wishes, what do you want? Uh, and I think today if we, uh, if we had found, I, I, did, I had the talk um, this week, uh, with the school kids here from Orem Park, so there are uh, 200 kids that are sitting on the floor here, and I said, kids, um, imagine that you were cleaning up your room. Okay, so that's an imagination already. You're cleaning up your room, and you find this lamp at the back of the, uh, at the, back of the cupboard, uh, underneath your pajamas that you didn't put away, and your school books you can't find. There's this lamp, and, and you rub it, and the genie comes out and says, all right, one wish. What will you have? You can have anything you want. And uh, the kids sort of said for all sorts of things: the end of school, and um, more toys, and various other bits and pieces. Uh, but I wonder, as adults, what what would we say? Uh, would we say, you know, oh, I'm just waiting for a new place. Some of us are in it, so that one's ticked off. Um, it might be success in my workplace. Uh, it might be peace uh, in my family. Uh, it might be health in my body. Uh, it might be kids. It might be stability. Just want to have things remain the same for a little while because the world's just spinning. Uh, It may be sleep. Uh, It may be a pay rise. Uh, And then, of course, there's that famous wish, uh, another three wishes, please. No? No? Right. Okay, good. Anyway, that's, that's the one the kids kind of learn to ask for. If you get one wish, what do you wish? Well, I wish I had three more wishes, you see. Uh, as we as we look at those things, and you think, what would I pick? What would I choose out of that? I, I think I want us to think: How would you choose, if you had to go? So there's, I, I reckon there isn't just one thing that we want. There's a variety of different things. If you had to choose, how would you choose? And uh, I think most of us uh, go to one of uh, turn to one of three sources uh, when it comes to things to do with our finances: uh, a financial advisor of some kind, uh, and that might be an uncle or someone, but but and some of us do it more formally, but maybe a financial advisor, Uh, some of us would just always turn naturally to our families. So, hey, I want to know what I should do. Mum, dad, grandma, brother, sister, help me out. Family, sort me out with my set of priorities. And I think increasingly these days, uh, people are turning to a a much higher source of wisdom, uh, which is uh, this one here. Uh, they're turning to Facebook, and I, I see this all the time. In fact, I kind of do this a little bit as well, where people are going, hey, look, I'm going to Melbourne next week, where's a good place to get coffee? You know, important questions like that. And people answer their, their question, or, or they're saying, where's a good place to, you know, where would I stay if I was going to Bali, or something like that? And instead of figuring it out themselves, they ask the Facebook universe of their friends and go, sort it out for me. So I think it's financial advisors, family, friends. I think that's kind of where we, where we go to make decisions on our, on our priorities. Uh, as we come to this section here, I, I want us to think, uh, let's ask God. Sounds odd, doesn't it? Where, where does he fit in in those three? Let, let's ask God. So the question we're going to ask God is, what does it mean to be wise? How would you help me choose? How should my priorities be different if I'm talking with the living God? And so fortunately today, we have an opportunity to meet with the living God. We have an opportunity to see someone who met with God and had their priorities sorted out. So what does it mean to be wise? Well, the first thing I want to do is introduce you to this guy called Solomon. Now, if you've heard of Solomon, you might know he built the temple, and you might know that he was a really wise king. That's pretty much all most of us will know about Solomon. But uh, it's actually pretty intriguing. How did Solomon get to become king? Uh, you can't read it, so don't worry if you're looking at going, that's a silly slide. That's okay, I acknowledge it's a silly slide. What it is, is it's David's family tree. Uh, you can see David's name uh, up, uh, up here. And then these yellow boxes here are his wives. Yes, you'll notice that that's plural, yeah? Okay, now if we zoom in a little bit, you'll start to see that there were some sons... That came from those wives. Uh, the firstborn was a guy called Amnon. Okay, so who becomes the king after David then? Okay, so the answer is Amnon, because your firstborn becomes the king next. Okay, so who becomes the king after David? And you say, great answer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if he fell off a twig, then Kiliab, uh the next guy, uh, would be the guy, but we actually don't hear anything about him, so we imagine he does fall off a twig at some point. Uh, Then we have this guy Absalom over here, uh, uh, the, the third born. And then the fourth born is Adonijah. And then somewhere way down the track is this guy called Solomon who's born to Bathsheba, lady of shame. Yeah? So the question we have to ask ourselves today is, how on earth does Solomon even get to be king to have this question asked of God? Well, here's kind of what happens Uh, And it's a terrible story. You know, if we're bored by Australian politics, as we kind of work out who's going to be our next prime minister, I've got to assure you, it's a much safer, more enjoyable world than the world of kingly transition, which truly is horrific. So Amnon actually ends up having, uh, well, he rapes Absalom's sister. Terrible. Eventually, Absalom kills Amnon. Okay, one down. Absalom then quietly arranges a coup against his father, eventually gets chased out and David's soldiers kill him. Brilliant. So now we have lots of sons, we've got a couple out of the way, we've now got Adonijah and a little bit later Adonijah starts undermining his father's rule as well and starts to take over the kingdom for himself. Grabs a whole bunch of people, grabs all his other brothers, has a little king-making ceremony outside of Jerusalem. Someone ducks back to Jerusalem and says, hey, do you know what the boys are up to out here? And there's only one guy who isn't invited. To be with all of his brothers while Adonijah is made king. His name's Solomon. And his mum Bathsheba walks into David and says, hey David, you might not be aware of this, but they're out there making your other son... um, king and i'm pretty sure you promised me that my son solomon could become king so can we just kind of get that sorted out now and david goes oh sure well if that's what he's doing sure yeah no problems so he makes solomon king in jerusalem says to everyone hey we've got a new king they start celebrating and blowing trumpets and having a huge party and the people who are outside jerusalem go hey what's that noise happening in jerusalem oh david's announced that solomon is king and sat him on the throne That might not work out so well for us now. So they run away. Eventually, uh, Adonijah um, ends up being killed by Solomon to establish his throne. Now, that's a pretty unusual set of circumstances, isn't it? Have a listen to what David says when he's dying to Solomon. He says, deal with him according to your wisdom. He's talking about one of his enemies. Deal with him according to your wisdom but do not let his grey head go down to the grave in peace. Another one of his enemies, he says to Solomon, you are a man of wisdom, you will know what to do to him. Bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. When it comes to wisdom for Solomon, before this dream, I want to tell you, it looks like this. His wisdom carries a sword, it's smart, it's cunning, and it's relatively ruthless, that's the wisdom that Solomon has. Does that surprise you? All right, that's good. Uh, here's what it says in three, uh, one Kings chapter three verse one. You'll need to open it up. So if you can open it up now, uh, one Kings chapter three verse one. Here's what it says: Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his palace. And the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Uh, did I say that Solomon was smart? This is a great political alliance. Egypt is the foreign superpower and he's basically marrying into them so that they don't attack him. Smart move. Also, kind of a little bit against what the Bible would say about marrying fo- foreign wives. Here's the other thing we notice about Solomon's priorities here Solomon's priorities seem to be. He's uh, busy building his palace. He's going to get on to building God's temple, and then he's going to put a wall around Jerusalem. Do you see what his priorities are? Going to look after myself, going to get God in the picture, and I'll look after you, rabble, a little bit later. That's his priorities as a man with just regular wisdom. Solomon, however, showed his love for the Lord, it says in verse 3, by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. That's a really interesting thing. It's also a dodgy thing to do. Uh, So he's being really obedient to God, and he's kind of on the side, burning incenses in the wrong spot, outside of Jerusalem, away from the tent where God's presence was. So it's a bit of a conundrum. Uh, Solomon, but he's trying to love God in the midst of his messed up world. What I want you to see today is what changes when Solomon meets God. What's different? Solomon and godly wisdom. Have a look at verses 4 to 5 where we read this. The king went to Gibeon, this is this other place away from Jerusalem, to offer sacrifices for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Cheap? no siree. This is very significant. It's a sacrifice in terms of animals dying, but it's a financial sacrifice as well. The king is really putting himself out here. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. I cannot but help having this image. The living God appears to Solomon in the dream and says, hey mate, blank slate. It's all up to you. Ask me for whatever you wish. Now we can have quiet thoughts, but if you were laid there, if the God of the universe said to you, you can have anything you want, what would you ask for? It's an extraordinary question, isn't it? I'm prepared to say no one is ever offered this, uh, this option again in the rest of the Bible. No one. So what did Solomon say in response? I'm going to look at this uh, with a number of sections. The first thing I think he says has something to do with history. Have a look with me at verse 6 if you look in, uh, in your Bibles there. So God said, ask me whatever you want. Solomon answered, give me a car. No, this is what he said. You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. The first thing that that Solomon does is he recounts the history of God's faithfulness. He says, actually, I am going to slow everything down. I'm going to call to mind God's blessings to me. Do you remember 2 Samuel 7, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where God said, one of your descendants will rule forever on your throne. Here's, here's, uh, here's Solomon saying, hey, I'm the fruit of that. God, you have been faithful and kind to my father. First thing that Solomon does extraordinarily is not rush into saying, um, I'd like a... He says, no, you know what? I want to recognize your faithfulness, God. Before I even get on to the asking. It's beautiful, isn't it? So, first thing is the history. The second thing is to do with humility. Have a look at the next verse, verses 7 to 8. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. There's a couple of great things in here. The first thing, when you say we're a people too numerous to count on number, what are we calling to mind? The promise from Genesis 12 to Abraham, that you will have offspring as many as the stars in the sky. Yeah? Another covenant blessing. So first thing, covenant blessing is remembered. The second thing is the humility. He recognizes his need for help. He could say, hey God, I just want you to make everything work out well for me. Instead he says, your people are awesome. You've done so well, God, but I'm just young. I actually don't know how to lead this great people of yours. I need help. I need your help. So the second thing he does in humility is he recognizes his need for help. The third thing is quite remarkable, and I think this is the heart, so to speak, of, uh, of what Solomon does that's wise. Have a look with me at verse 9. So... Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. See, Solomon could have asked for a whole lot of things and instead what he asked for is a heart, not just an outcome. Can you see that? He says, God, I want you to transform me not just a one time deal. So he could have said, Please make sure all the taxes this year are paid on time. Please make sure I have a big, powerful army. Please make sure that all of my enemies are crushed. That's not what he says. He says, Change me for the task you have entrusted to me. He asks for a heart, not just an outcome. I think that's radical. And I think he's incredibly smart to ask for it. Because if that changes, then all the other things that he will touch will be touched by the change that happens here first. Can you see that? Now, this is the most beautiful bit. I I love this photo. It's a great smile, isn't it? Uh, I think this next bit is brilliant. Have a look with me at verses 10 to 14. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. Tick. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked it. So he said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life, or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. Brilliant. So God's going to do what he asked. That's great. But have a look. It gets even better than that. I will do what you have asked. And then he says... I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. So, what sort of heart are you going to get? I'm not just going to give you like, you know, eight out of ten. It's not going to give you 11. I'm going to give you the most wise and discerning heart that there has ever been. Verse 13, moreover, this is where it gets really just radical and gracious. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for both wealth and honour, so that in your lifetime you'll have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So what's God done? We, we often talk about grace, and grace is this idea of undeserved favour, okay? And our God operates in grace, and because he's delighted with Solomon... He says, mate, I'm not just going to give you what you asked for. There it is. That would be enough, wouldn't it? No, no, no. I'm going to give you all the things you didn't ask for because I'm delighted at what you chose. I'm delighted at what you chose. And so grace is abundantly more than we ask or deserve. I want you to see the last one there, though. If you walk in obedience to my commands and decrees, I will also give you a long life. Do you see God's also saying obedience will have its reward. Grace poured out for you, and obedience will have its reward. So this one tells us that Solomon sought the Lord's pleasure, not just his own. He sought the Lord's pleasure, not just his own. Now that's a great challenge for us, isn't it? Does my prayer life, does my asking reflect a passion for God's pleasure or mine? Because when it comes down to it, why am I praying in the first place? Well, God, something's not right in my world. If you can scratch my itch and get it sorted out for me, that'd be brilliant. Here's Solomon going, no, 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 you've placed me in this place. Help me to be your vessel for your purpose. That's totally different, isn't it? And because he sought God's pleasure, what happened? Well, God was pleased and gave him more than he asked, or even more than he imagined. Well, following that, I think it's instructive to see, in verse 15, uh, what Solomon does. I've called this homecoming. Have a look at, uh, at verse 15. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. That's the end to a primary school uh, creative writing task, isn't it? No, you don't remember that. And then he woke and realized it had all been a dream. See, all that making up creative story doesn't matter. It never happened in reality. This is different to that. The living God did meet with Solomon. He did change his heart. It really happened. And so he realized it had been a dream, but not that it was worthless. And and thankfully, lots of things we dream don't come true. But this, this one did. And he returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. I think it's so important that he went home. Where had he been sacrificing? On a high place outside of Jerusalem. Now having met God, he goes, oh, that's right, I've done that wrong. I'm supposed to be in Jerusalem. I'm supposed to be here where your ark is. And so he sacrifices there and says, God, I'm home, I'm yours. Essentially what happens is Solomon woke up and he walked into the next day believing God had changed him. I think possibly... We get browbeaten out of believing our prayer changes anything. Let me see if I can explain a little bit. So we think, I'm going to pray about that, but we actually don't think anything in the world is going to be different. And so we go walking into the world having prayed, just looking at it to be exactly the same as before we started. I think it's completely erratic. I think the challenge is, if I've prayed in faith, if the living God has heard, then I will go looking for the change that I have prayed. I'll go looking for the change that I've prayed. And so I actually think Solomon walks back into Jerusalem going, well, I'm coming back here a changed man. I am wise and equipped and I am ready to lead God's people, not because of me, but because the living God who I've prayed to will do what he has said. He will do what he said. And so Solomon walks forward uh, in faith. I think it's intriguing to note the way the sword comes back into the story. After Solomon's been made wise, what does he do with the sword? He doesn't use it, do you see? In his worldly wisdom, they've been killing and mayhem everywhere, hadn't there? And then when we come to the story of the prostitutes with the babies, do you remember this story? And he gets the sword out and he says, cut the baby in two, and the real mother is revealed, yeah? And so the wisdom of God actually here stays the hand that would have shed blood and reveals the truth. I think it's a beautiful change for Solomon. I want us to see, uh, it's really interesting. It says that uh, there'll be no man wiser uh, than Solomon. Uh, it's intriguing that when Jesus, who's the God man, comes and walks on earth, he has this to say about himself. The men of Nineveh, so the, he'd been talking with the Pharisees, Jesus had been talking with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees have been saying to him, hey, show us a sign. And Jesus goes, well, actually, I just cast out a demon over here. Did you see that? That's a sign kind of thing. And they're going, actually, can you show us a sign? He says, well, I tell you what, I don't really have any signs left for the people who won't see what I'm already doing. So let me just kind of paint you a picture about who I am. You want to know who I am, is what Jesus is saying. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up on the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, And now something greater than Jonah is here. What he's saying is, I speak and you should listen. A godless nation listened to Jonah, but the people of God aren't listening to the Son of God. That's not good. And then he says, the Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. What he's saying is, have you heard of the Queen of Sheba? Yeah, She came to visit Solomon because she'd heard he was really wise. So a foreign godless queen comes across nations to listen to godly wisdom. And Jesus is saying, I'm standing in front of you as the son of God, speaking God's words, and you won't even listen to me. So the people of Nineveh will condemn this nation because someone greater than Jonah is here. And the Queen of the South will condemn this nation because someone greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying, my words are God's words. You should listen to me. And it's uh, it's interesting because Jesus' wisdom has a shape uh, and it's upside down from the world's perspective. Can you guys turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to show you the shape. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you've got the page number, you can call it out. Someone will, I'm sure, by faith. See, look at me, by faith here. 11.42, fantastic. I want you to see how upside down the wisdom that Jesus brings to the world is. Okay, So I could tell you, hey, listen, be smart with your finances, look after your family, care for your friends, and that would be the wisdom of the world. I want you to hear how upside down the wisdom of God is and what shape it has. Have a look with me at verses 17 to 18 here. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. Paul says to the church there, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You want to know what the cross, the heart of the Christian message looks like to the world? Foolishness. Point two, he continues verses 19 to 21. For it is written, this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not, the, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. To save those who believe. See, what he's saying here is God says, I've got a better way than you, world. Your world thinks you're going to be saved by saving money, by looking after your family, and by having good friends, that you'll have a full life. He says, That's not how it's found. It's actually found in Jesus. This world's wisdom, I'm going to turn it upside down. God's wisdom destroys the wisdom of the world. More than that, verse 22. It says, Jews demand signs. We just saw it, didn't we? And Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Yeah. No, not with me. Not feeling it. I... I I think it's brilliant. It's basically saying God will be wiser than this world and his glory, his wisdom, his strength, his power is shown in weakness in his son dying on a cross to save us. That looks foolish. But if you want to be wise, you'll listen and be saved. Lastly, it says here that Jesus is our wisdom. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us, Wisdom from God. Who's our wisdom? Jesus. How does he show us his wisdom? Foolishness. By dying on the cross. Does it make sense to the world around us? No. Nope. Have you ever had a conversation where you've been speaking with someone and go, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He died on a cross. And they've gone, that's amazing. What a wonderful thing. Our great teacher was crucified under the most powerful people in his world. He died. He died. Seems foolish, doesn't it? Until you claim he rose again, conquered death, paid the price for our sin, and lives eternally at the Father's right hand from where he will return to judge the living and the dead. Then it's the greatest news we've ever heard. What does the wisdom of God look like? Have a look up there. What's the shape in the middle? It's cross-shaped. The wisdom of God is cross-shaped, foolishness to the world, but wise in God's sight. How will we live wisely? How will you and I live wisely? What's well, interesting. Let's have a look at how meeting God changed Solomon. It sorted out his priorities. If we have a look, before Solomon's priorities had been me, then God, then others. But once he, once he returned from his dream, once he figured it out, well, what did he do? He returned to God and offered a sacrifice to God. And then he gave a feast to For all in his court, so he thought of them before him. Do you see? His priorities were changed around once he'd found the wisdom from God. God first, others second, me three. When we're trying to act wisely, we need to work out who we're speaking to. Are we speaking to God who's a genie? or to the living, eternal God. If we're talking to the living, eternal God, then we want to remember his faithful history. We want to be people who come humbly before him. We want to be people who ask for a heart, not just an outcome. God, give me a heart. So in the midst of suffering and sickness, yes, Lord, take it away, but give me a heart of perseverance. When do we ever pray for our hearts? If we're talking to the living God and not a genie, then we might seek his happiness and not just our own. God, what would you delight in me asking of you for this situation? Now, there's a radical thing to ask, isn't it? What would you want me to ask of you if I was seeking to please you, not just myself? And you might be sitting there right now and you're going, oh, I've got no idea. But you know what? There's, a th- there's something to pursue God, what is your heart? What do you long for me in this situation? Not just what I want for me. Do you see? Thirdly, in order to be wise, I think we need to be shaped not just by our own cunning in the shape of a sword, by financial advisors, by family and Facebook. Don't ignore them. But if they define my whole wisdom system, we're wrong. We must... Have our wisdom shaped by the cross. God's priorities and principles through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. God, tip my world upside down. Put Jesus at the center of it and give me a passion for your pleasure. Here's my encouragement you might be sitting there thinking, I'm not very wise today. I don't think I'm very wise. Have a listen to these beautiful words. We'll finish with these from James, James chapter one, verse five. This is the living God speaking to you today. Have a listen to these words. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. There's something to pray, isn't it? Let's ask God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible faithfulness. A faithfulness that kept your word to David, that saw it fulfilled in your son. Father, we thank you that in your son, Jesus, our sins are forgiven. That the foolishness of the cross is your wisdom. I pray, Father, we wouldn't be ashamed of it, but we might boast in it. That the cross might define and shape our thinking. Heavenly Father, help us to put you first, others second, and ourselves third. Help us to know what it looks like to have a passion for your pleasure in our prayer. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.